Is it possible to have unity between faith and politics? In this episode of The Salted Podcast, Pastor Dan Williams and Yon Whiteway reveal the major elements of contention in politics and in faith, and discuss how biblical principles may aid in unifying these two polarizing combatants. Welcome to The Salted Podcast. My name is Yon. Dan Williams here. And we are excited for you to join us today as we touch on the topic of politics. Specifically, why can't we all just get along? I like how you said we're going to touch on it, you know, as yes. if we're just going to gl- glance over this catastrophic topic. Actually, we're going to solve all of your political issues and divisions today, so don't go anywhere. And then stick around because our personal preferences section, we will discuss peppermint in caffeinated coffee beverages Mm. is that a good way to say it Mm -hmm. so stick around for that we are kind of coming out of a pretty contentious presidential election here in america and we are on the back end of a lot of legal fighting from the trump team on questioning the validity of the election results in certain swing states It would appear as though the Electoral College has cast their votes uh, for Joe Biden, so he would technically be the president-elect at this point. And we wanted to talk about the idea that we keep hearing, and that is a call to unity. Now that the election is over, there is calls primarily from one side of the aisle around unifying behind this new president, this new administration, and coalescing around our unified identity as Americans and trusting the electoral process and moving forward. And this is this is a traditional call to unity, right? You know, this is not uh, a new president-elect coming up with some new language around um, his election uh, or a new call to action. This is kind of traditional. Yeah, it's not it's not uncommon once you have a pretty contentious division, divisive election. After that, it's, okay, well, we did it, we fought hard, and a lot of times you'd hear on election night the concession speech from the the losing party would be, okay, well, congratulations, let's move forward as a country, but I don't think, we definitely haven't heard that, and I'm not sure we're going to hear that, but the, it's pretty traditional, now let's move forward in unity. Yeah, I always I always get a, a nice laugh out of the... Uh, the primary elections after the primary um, winner emerges, you know, they call for everybody unifying the party, getting behind the candidate who everyone else had just called a racist and a bigot for right. and, a, and a, uh, a criminal cheat for the last three months. Right. It's just, it gives you a little bit of insight into the actual the game of politics where the other people are like, oh, OK, yeah, that, that's cool. I don't care. You could you call me that. That's fine. I won. Yeah, let's move on. Right. But. So, uh, Yon. It would seem like a call to unity is appropriate, right? It would seem like this is specifically what's needed for our country. The The election uh, obviously resulted in a lot of turmoil and a lot of, uh, I would say, public displays of division, protests, parades, um, in the courts, out of the courts, um, all different all different ways it's it's obvious right even some of the activist groups that are clashing and warring uh, in ways that are now not just behind the scenes or on social media but are public um, so what what's the trouble really with a president saying 
uh, hey, let's let's get together, let's unify for the good of the country, get some work done. Can't we all, in the words of Rodney King, can't we all just get along? Uh, what's the trouble with that? I, yeah, I don't think that there's necessarily any trouble and that if you or I were in the same position, we would probably be saying the same exact thing. Um, so why is it a, so why is that easier said than done? Yeah, it's definitely a problem because if you have two eyes and ears and you've been around for the last couple months, the divisiveness of our country is kind of, it's it's not only in the political sphere, but it is really kind of boiling down and, and kind of fleshing out to be really a representation of a culture war that's going on. And there's a perception that um, the, pol- the, the political fight is a representation of a really deep cultural divide in which one side would say we are literally losing the uniqueness of our culture and using, losing the parts of our culture that we find most um, deeply held. And the other side saying we're helping change towards some of those things that are more deeply held. So there's, there's really a culture war where there's two sides who are enraged at each other, and that's working itself out. Um, and those and those side that culture war includes what we now see uh, has been divided among racial lines, identity lines, sexual orientation lines, uh, uh, religious categories. So all of these um, all of these uh, political parties have all been carved up, right? So the culture war includes division even among uh, each side. Yeah, there's divisions that go all the way down the line in one. Um, you can see examples of this everywhere where you can see um, whether it be um, in institutions such as embracing some academic theories or, or not embracing them, um, such as critical theory, things like that, um, moving down the line of saying embracing the idea of systemic racism and injustice or, or not or pushing back on that, um, embracing the idea of, of gender fluidity and gender being a social construct versus the... Um, the idea that there's two genders. And so you see there's divisions all the way down that are uh, found in our culture, which have really practical implications for people. And I think that's one of the things in the last couple of years is that these divisions and, and, and the, the implications for normal people are actually kind of coming to the forefront. And people are starting to say, well, is that what we really want for our country? Is that really what we want for our lives? Or do we want to maintain the way we've been living um, and, and push back. So I think there's there's two things happening in the culture where some of these ideas are, are being pushed into our lives and where people are having to make a decision and they make a decision primarily with who they vote for. So, so there's another, you said there was two wars. Yeah, so there's the culture war primarily and then I think there's also a secondary issue that we are not necessarily aware of but is impacting us and that's the, the ratings war which would be the industrial media uh, industrial media, yeah. the industrial media complex. Yes, I'm wow. very so conspiratorial. Eisenhower. Yeah, <laughs> but the but if you look at the the very large media conglomerates and people who want your eyeballs on their content, so that they can sell advertising and they can, um, in the case of apps and stuff like that, they can they can leverage your data and your inform and your for for obviously for monetary gain. So there's a ratings war going on where the where we have the media is maybe not necessarily interested in pushing one side or the other. They are interested in having you look at their content. 
And so you can see that pretty explicitly in some of the news coverage. I mean, Fox News is generally leans a little bit more conservative. And then so they generally capture the conservative uh, Republican audience. And then some of the other ones, MSNBC would probably be the other side. But they generally want to capture the um, more progressive and liberal side of things. But everywhere you go, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, they all want your eyeballs on their content on their platform so that they can sell advertising money. And um, at some point, um, as consumers, as America is kind of based on the idea of consumerism, that we have to be aware of this war that's going on and how everyone is not necessarily concerned with your well-being or the well-being of the country. They are more concerned with the well-being of their company and their bottom line. Yeah, they need an audience. And I was reading recently that the audience is generated by outrage. Yes. The more outrage red meat you send to your audience, specifically your base audience, the more eyes there are, the more controversy, the more yep. um, despair, the more anger, the more outrage, the more eyes, and then the ratings go up right. And uh, in, in peacetime. or So it seems obvious then that the media in general, both sides, are not necessarily covering stories that are emerging. They're generating stories. Right. There's yeah. a, there is a level of activism within journalism as well, where um, activist journalism, where you, they, the journalists have a political perspective that they would like to um, continue to propagate and promote. And so um, they choose stories that help promote that. Um, but there are other journalists who are doing it well and who are telling truth just for the sake of truth. But at the same time, they know their audience. They know what people want. And like you said, outrage generates a lot of views, a lot of clicks, and a lot of engagement. And um, if I can give you an example, totally unrelated to politics, but a lot of people have an issue with Instagram where I was in the fitness industry for a while. And so we, you're not allowed to post before and after photos on Instagram. They ban that. Um, but what you can do is they have these influencers who are, who are overweight and they they can say, look at how beautiful I am, and they can post their pictures. And so a lot of the fitness industry people are enraged by this, and they say, I can't post a healthy lifestyle, but this person can post and be celebrated. And it really clarified it when I heard a, a social media marketer say, look, they don't care about the content. They care about the fact that you are outraged enough to engage with their content. And they, if you put a before and after picture on there, people are going to feel bad about themselves, and they're not going to want to go back to that app they're not going to want to go back to instagram and they're going to not engage so they're mm. not con really concerned with your they're health not. or well-being they're concerned with putting content that doesn't drive you away that encapsulates you even if it means you are just so angry that you're typing how can this be so the principle is engagement the principle is not a moral principle or a values principle yeah i think it's a gotcha. it's a good starting point where we see that there's a culture war where there's people who actually care about what's going on in the country but it's also the war is being fueled by people who don't necessarily care they care about clicks and engagement and so you, eyeballs so you mentioned that there were two sides and uh, kind of alluded to what they were after but how would you What's a help us understand what's what what are the two sides in this uh, culture war? Yeah, so we say there's two sides. If you are, if you find yourself maybe a libertarian or an anarchist or something, you're not maybe probably in these two sides. But there's generally two sides <laughs> for all of you anarchists yes, listening exactly. to us today. So, um, so there's lots of sides, but generally in the because we have a, a two party system, we kind of coalesce in two different sides of the of the fence, the conservative side and what would be described as the progressive worldview. So the conservative worldview, people who 
really think that the thing that makes the American culture and the American way of life exceptional is the foundational documents as the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And so their goal would be to conserve the rights that were enshrined in that document. Um, and then the other side would be the progressives who, who are interested in, they don't necessarily believe that what makes America exceptional is the actual uh, rights found in the Constitution, but it is a, progress, a progression towards a more perfect union and changing those um, beliefs, those um, enshrined um, rights, and altering them so that they, we can make them more perfect and we progress towards something that's better. Certainly, progress in their worldview would be uh, dismantling long-held traditions if those traditions were perceived to be in the way of quote-unquote progress, right? Social rights and, and uh, um, uh, racial justice and so on. Correct, yeah. yeah. So um, now Christians, obviously Christians aren't divided, right? No, in fact, Christians are so unified politically. It's that's it's a testament to the entire world. It's astonishing. Light in the head. There's your little dose of sarcasm for the for the half hour. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, tell me a little bit about um, the division among Christians. Yeah, so Christians uh, we're a unique group because at no point, obviously, you're you know find anything in the Bible or or Jesus explicitly saying that espousing a particular political belief specifically 2000 years later after Jesus was on the on well, the earth. He did say pay your fair share. Yes. That's a very right. that's kind of a standard progressive line. That's right. Yes, exactly. So maybe they're right. Yeah. Yeah. So well there's primarily four areas that the Bible talks about around political um I guess dispositions and the Bible doesn't prescribe specific public policy but there's four areas that it kind of touches on the first is is racial justice is that the bible is very um pro um, racial justice and the um, the unity of all people as created with inherent value and dignity in the image of god and on equal footing before god um, the next one is a, is a concern for the poor and marginalized so widows and orphans and everyone who is primarily in need so caring for them providing for them and meeting their needs as if uh, and treating them as if they were on equal footing socially as uh, the more powerful people culturally. Um, and then the third one is is more of a sexual morality approach, and that is the idea that sex is primarily between, well, not primarily, <laughs> sex is mandated to be between a man and a woman in a in a traditional marriage relationship. And then the fourth one would be a pro-life approach, which can show up um, in the area of abortion today. So there's four main things, racial justice, poor and mar- caring for the poor and marginalized, sexual morality, um, and uh, a pro-life abortion approach. Right. So um, so this, those issues obviously uh, emerge as some of the, the tensions uh, within the Christian uh, community. And then you have the political tensions between the conservative and progressive worldview. So, so, what, what do you think, what can we learn about what really is dividing these two sides specifically? The, this, the idea that the call for unity is easier said than done. Why is that the case? Yeah, it's definitely, and specifically, I guess we can talk specifically for the Christian, our Christian context because it's probably a microcosm for what we're looking at um, cult, culture-wide, but I mean, even in those four areas, we can see that primarily 
if you took racial justice and care for the poor and marginalized, that when it shows up in American politics, that's generally something that's championed by um, a more liberal or democratic approach to um, to public policy. And probably conservatives would probably disagree with that, but um, generally speaking, and I think then it's I think it's fair to say that that the progressives believe that the solutions for racial justice, poor and marginalized, sexual morality, and abortion, pro-life, those solutions come through the government. Sure. Right? And the conservatives would say that those solutions come through the generosity of the individual citizen and the personal responsibility of each um, each person individually. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's probably a good way to approach it. So the, um, so the trouble with unity then is... Um, in large part, you can see how there's this profound, deep down fear of loss, right? Uh, so the progressives have values, the conservatives have values, obviously the Christian community has values within those two parties. And there is this obvious fear of loss, which then uh, causes the emergence of anger, and grief, right? So grief, when you lose something that's valuable to you as a conservative or a progressive, and the anger of having it taken from you from the other side politically. Yeah, it's a, it's not unlike a traditional mourning or grieving situation where you, if you um, love your country, you love um, freedom, you love what the country represents, whatever side of the political aisle, you love, you love something and you are if you if the other side wins then you're you're losing that thing that you care deeply for and so a lot of times that also helps to defines our identity and that when we get in these culture wars and these political wars we we become a we're a pro trump person and that's our identity or you're an an anti trump person or a pro biden person or and so that shapes our identity and the way we interact with people and so if our side loses we lose a big a big chunk of our identity and um, something that secures and advances our value system, and it's it's not unlike mourning and grieving. And so, um, the reason it's easier said than done to unify is because there's there's significant deep loss and fear, um, which is the opposite of what would be a, a love your neighbor and a deep selfless love that would that unity would require. But the opposite of love being fear, we're just afraid we're going to lose something, and we can't. We have a hard time reconciling those two things. I've noticed, too, that this is no longer, and maybe it's never been, but I've noticed it kind of more palpable now than ever. It's also now not just winning or losing at the polls, right? It's not like my party's in power, my party has lost power. Now, uh, there's a lot of deeply held belief and people expressing this belief that this is good versus evil. There's a sense that me and my party or me and my candidate or me and my president uh, are fighting we're good and we're fighting evil now yep it seems like almost every election it's the last election before our republic yeah. collapses right if, yeah, if the true. other side wins <laughs> yeah regardless of what side you're on yeah this is the most important election in our lifetime that's right mm-hmm. um so it's this it's no longer perceived to be just equal but different political ideas and uh so so why is winning or losing this battle so vital in the minds of people 
Yeah, it's a. I mean, it's that. It's the same idea of 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 losing something that you deeply care for and you deeply love, and I mean, and it's it's hyperbolic, but not not on purpose in the way hyperbole is supposed to use. I mean, when people perceive Donald Trump to making equivalencies with Donald Trump with Adolf Hitler or making equivalencies with Barack Obama as um, the Antichrist or something like those are fringe elements, but that's the level of, of dialogue where we're at, where the extremes. And then once you make, you work your way back from the extremes, you know, it's the thing called the Overton window where you create such an extreme that even if you're not on the extreme end, you walk it back and it's still pretty extreme if we step back and look at it. And um, it's, it's not just about winning or losing. It's about, this is, this is my country. This is what I care about. This is where I place a lot of my identity as an American and my freedom and all that. And, um, this person's going to take it away forever. Right. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's going to be taken away or stolen, which is even yeah. right. Even more bitter, embittering. Um, yeah. And we actually, ironically, we as Americans, we spend a lot of time celebrating the people who provided us freedom, like veterans day, Memorial day and all that stuff. And, and eventually, uh, some people who know the people who serve or who know people who have um, um, sacrificed for the country, it becomes a question of, well, what did they give their life for? What did they spend their time doing? And it affects not only them, but affects the people that they love. So Yeah. Well, it also explains why there's a natural willingness to lie and cheat to avoid losing those things. Yeah. It's a the t- perfect ends justifies the means situation where the stakes are so high that I will violate all of my personal ethical and moral principles to ensure that those ethical and moral principles are, right, are right. maintained in our cultures. So. Yeah. Or you just choose, uh, you, you kind of focus in on a ethical, uh, value that you think is kind of overrides the other one. Maybe one example of that is that, um, law and order and citizenship, according to the uh, laws of our country overrides the ethical value of compassion for the right. uh, immigrant, for right. example. Uh, yep. So that would that would be the justifier yep. in someone's mind. And it's always a, a lot of it is there's also a deep sense of whataboutism that we kind of tolerate, where mm. it's like, okay, well, someone's like, well, your side lied. It's like, yeah, but your side did too. So yeah. we're like, oh, well, it's fine as long as the other people are doing it. We can justify it because someone else did it yeah. and I'm, we have to do it. I'm relatively better than That's you right. are. Yeah. <laughs> or relatively as bad, yeah, not yeah. worse. Yeah, so. Yeah. <laughs> but, so that's kind of the problem. We've, I mean, in a nutshell, um, what, Pastor Dan, what um, can we do when we look at how can we change the way we look at it, when we transform our view of this? And so can really give us some ideas of what God says about, um, about this approach and our approach to politics. Yeah, I think, I think the first thing that comes to my mind is that we have to be careful that we see the world different from the, wor- the way the world sees itself. If it's true that Jesus describes his followers as salt, salt has to add a flavor that without it, the world would not have. So I think we start with that. If we don't see the world different than the world sees itself, there's some real issues with our faith. What are some of those ways that we would look at different? Yeah, well, I mean, one way, uh, a starting starting point would be the idea that neither political party exclusively advances God's kingdom. By exclusively, I mean alone, by themselves. 
distinct from and separate from and, and, and to the exclusion of the other party, right? Uh, which means no matter what party I support, I also have to believe that the other party contributes to advancing God's kingdom in some way. And I, some people, I know that's going to make some people. I mean, absolutely, they're 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 reaching right now for the stop yeah, they've button. They've all to, stopped it. And yeah, they've to, thrown their device. And, and they're unsubscribing that's presently, right. uh, if they were. Um, but let's start with this idea that th- that's true because all people are sinful, right? Christians mm-hmm. ag- agree that that the doctrine of depravity says that we all start with sinful hearts, which means both parties are made up with people who are deeply flawed. Both parties. So both parties end up with fatal flaws. Also, uh, all people, because they are sinful, live for their own glory. So both parties are made up of people, candidates, and voters who have a lust for exclusive and supreme power or um, have a, a bias based on their desires, based on their, their yeah. own sinful hearts. So neither party is pure or righteous or exempt from uh, reflection and repentance, really. I can't think of a more obvious place on the planet where people, it's an active demonstration of people pursuing their own glory, their own power, and their own self-promotion than the political world the circus yeah. as they call it yeah so, yeah, yeah that's it's hard to miss <laughs> so true um so there are ways that that christians can contribute to yeah. solving the problem yeah what are some of the, so what are some of the ways that we as christians can say look we i can have a strong political approach i can be engaged in politics um, i can look at the world differently um, but what's some of the ways in which you can Give us some advice on how to. Well, it. yeah, let's start with the unity that's based on being a part of the human race, right? My theology informs me that every human being has dignity, value, and worth, even if their po- their political policies uh, enrage me, or um, I inherently believe are evil. These are still human beings that. Um, we that share dignity value and worth and you mentioned it earlier that are made in the image of god so uh, that's a starting point for sure and then uh, beyond that when we think of christians and and um we that are in the other political party some people would say it's impossible for christians to actually exist in the other party and both parties say that. I've, you know, in my occasional uh, wandering through Twitter, I see both both political parties saying that about the other political party. And neither of them can process, even begin to process without short-circuiting how it's possible that a Christian could be in the other party. Uh, but if you're a Christian and you're in God's family, the, the unity that we find is so beyond politics, it's so beyond policies, it's so beyond the laws that govern our country and the values that govern our country. Uh, What we're told is that when we are adopted into God's family, that the barriers between classes is erased. It's all equal footing now. The good news is that uh, each of us who belong to God's family do so by no merit of our own, so we can't be prideful. And all of the deficiencies of the people that are around us that we despise 
have been forgiven just like ours have. So we can't look down on them, right? We can't look down on them because we haven't been adopted into God's family by our own righteousness or our own value and worth that's better than someone else. So the good news kind of brings unity in both the way that the good news informs us and the bad news informs us. It makes us all. So it removes the barrier between classes, between races, uh, and between genders. So men and women are equal. Slave and, and, and master are equal. And um, all uh, um, that was classes, uh, genders, and races. Um, so, yeah, or cultures, you could say, okay, Greeks yeah. and Greeks and Jews. Mm-hmm. So... Um, and another way, and another way that Christians can look at this problem or solving the unity problem, uh, right, related to, hey, let's just unify now, is is this: biblical principles should shape your politics, not political partisanship shaping your biblical principles. And this is this is a tough one. This is a tough one because we tend to pick the principles that we're most that most identify with us that, or, or that are, that are better politics for our party. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's, that's, um, that's a real difficult one, but it's true. Let me say that again. Biblical principles should shape your politics, yeah. not political partisanship. Right. And right? that's my party yeah. shaping my b- biblical principles. Right. And that is the hardest thing to, and that is one of the one of the critiques of Christianity is that it's very narrow and prescriptive, but this is a perfect example of how it's not the, the Bible has these principles. We, it should be shaped by biblical principles and not political, but the Bible doesn't prescribe specific policy. We have to do the hard work of figuring it out. And I think that's where some of the, the main divisions show up within the church, which show up in within politics is, well, what does it actually look like to, to, to embrace the idea that all people are equal, all races are equal, and that the Bible is about racial justice. And well, okay, well, what does that look like in a public policy approach? Right, and and to believe that my party has the perfect political platform or strategy to to reduce racism or reduce abortion uh, is is probably inaccurate. Right, and you know, I and <laughs> exclusively right. my party, exclusively. Yep. Uh, yeah. So and and also to project the idea that if you don't believe like I do, you want to propagate racism and systemic racism and how why why would you vote for this person are you for racism are you why could you vote for this person are you for the killing of children in abortion it's like and so i think toning it back and saying well can i if really if that person's a follower of jesus they're in my family they have been renewed and i'm and we share something above political affiliation and unity around that so i can give you the benefit of doubt maybe on your intentions and say well no pastor dan if he thinks differently he doesn't necessarily is not in favor of killing kids or in favor of um racism racism but i can give him the benefit of the doubt and yeah. start right there and let's assume that me or the other side or another christian in my church family let's assume that they may share my value for um you know anti-racism or um pro-life, right? But that they have discovered that there are policies in the other party that they like better to reduce right. racism or reduce abortion, yep. right? And that's, that's a pretty nuanced conversation here. I mean, right. probably a lot of a lot of landmines that yeah. we ought to be dodging. But, um, but it's just a, the idea that biblical principles shape our political, our politics, not vice versa. Um, it just means to avoid the idea of saying, you know what? my side's got it all figured out and right. 
clearly the biblical principles are embodied in my my exclusively my political party's platform. Yeah. And you never, you know, I, I should say, I shouldn't say you never, but I have not recently heard many people advocating the nuances of their political right. party's platform that are more effective in reducing racism and right. abortion. Yeah. Rather, it's it's profound, sweeping generalizations mm-hmm. that everybody on the other side of the aisle is a racist or, or uh, an abortionist, yep. right? And it's... Yep. In, in, what if it's possible that you're no more racist than the other side is an abortionist? Yep. Right. And ironically, we're when we do that, we're violating the like what the second primary principle of love your neighbor. It's like we're we're not demonstrating any empathy. We're demonizing. Yeah. We're really not loving our neighbor. Right. Um, it does get complicated because you could see uh, the biblical principle that I think a lot of people are standing on who do that. Yon are saying that they have a biblical mandate, a conviction to call out evil. Sure, yeah. And that abortion is evil, so that's why you're sweeping to say the other party is evil because there's a party that is obviously in their platform as abortion. And then the other side would say, well, racism is evil, and obviously the Republicans are evil right. because racism is evil. And if, you know, if you're not anti-racist like we are um, or your policies, whatever, but, but again— it's it's so much more nuanced than that. It's mm-hmm. there's there's policy questions that that make it more complicated. Yep. And so, how do we? How can we know if our principle when we're going through this and we want to diagnose our approach? How mm-hmm. can we know whether or not we are our biblical principles principles are shaping our politics as opposed to our politics shaping our yeah. biblical principles? Yeah, that's a good good question. Uh, well, let's start with it challenges or critiques or corrects both parties, both sides of the argument, both platforms, uh, both people groups, um, both races, both genders, both cultures are being, will be critiqued by a biblical principle. If it's a political principle, it might only critique the other, the, your opponent. But the Bible, biblical principles always challenge, critique, and correct both sides, all hearts of all people, all the time. Also, Biblical principle will shape how you treat people more than how you treat policies or more more than how you treat problems in our culture or in our politics. So treating people tends to be valued more in biblical principles than treating problems or policies. And one example of that might be, um, you know, the immigrant uh, orphan question, right? Um, the, the Democrats might believe um, that you fix the immigrant orphan problem with government programs um, with um, um, what might be considered, um, you know, what's that? Uh, oh, amnesty. And so the, the Democrats would believe that the, the, the best principle there is amnesty because it's compassionate and the government has to uh, basically ensure the, the, the amnesty of people who are looking for relief from their native country. And the Republicans would say, well, no, law, law and order fixes that, right? So go home if you're illegal and get in the back of the line because there is a legal immigration process, right? right? And both are advocating compassion. Right. It's compassion to... Right. Provide the amnesty, bring them in. Otherwise, the other people, other side, it's compassionate. 
for the people who are trying to enter legally and to right. provide them with the same opportunity. So it's really a, they're both advocating probably right. a similar principle of saying compassion, just the way they go around doing it. Exactly. And so a biblical principle would say uh, in both of those sides, government fixes, law and order fixes or whatever, biblical principle would say that human freedom is a sacred gift to be pursued. Pursued. Biblical principle would say that human rights are God-given, not government-given. Human rights would say, um, or human life is protected and, and served primarily by God's church, not by governments. So all those things, um, I think, in terms of biblical principles, would help that particular issue. Yeah, and, it's, and this goes, there's so many different issues and problems that government officials are dealing with trying to really apply public policy in areas that I don't know if public policy was designed to address. Like you said, that third one saying it's served primarily by God's church and not by government. And I think we put a lot of weight on the government to solve a lot of problems that the government really isn't necessarily designed or equipped to solve. Um, And then we throw stones at them saying, well, how could you not figure this out Mm. when maybe as a church, we should take a little bit more responsibility for stuff like this yep yeah for sure yeah and you know if a christian if a christian were to look at some of these um problems through a single lens right we 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 know that to summarize the law you say jesus teaches us that that we love god with our whole heart mind soul and strength then there's a second one that is to love our neighbor as ourselves. So even if you just view all of these problems and crisis and political uh, clashes through a simple lens or a simple principle, which is um, Christians of both parties are responsible to humbly treat people with love and dignity, even their enemies. And and some of the pushback on that is that, but, but Pastor Dan, you got to understand, they don't get this kind of treatment from me, a Christian, a genuine Christian, because they're evil. And what I'm doing is I'm standing up against evil. I'm calling out evil. I am. I don't hate the person. I just hate the evil that they're doing. And uh, I was struck to discover that when Paul was teaching Titus about leading his church, he said in, in chapter 3 of Titus, he said, remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers, which is kind of a stunning uh, suggestion that believers are to be reminded to submit, right? He doesn't say submit to the ones you agree with. Um, so uh, instead he said submit to all of them. They should be obedient always to do what is good and they must not slander anyone. They must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to everybody. And this is in the context of your political opponents, right? Elected officials. Well, he didn't know what he was. <laughs> yeah. He clearly no. didn't know what 2020 was going to be. Right. Look like well, in, in America. In, in fact, yeah, that would seem that would seem like the natural, uh, obvious observation. But there's a twist in the plot. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing this to Christian leaders of the church during the 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 phase of history where Nero was the emperor who later on would systematically persecute to death Christians. And so, so, so Paul isn't saying submit to Joe Biden or submit to Donald Trump because uh, they are essentially good. And he's not saying submit unless Donald Trump or Joe Biden is inherently evil or their party. In fact, he's saying 
Nero is as evil as you can get. But work towards submission, obedience, doing what's good, avoid slander and quarreling, and be gentle and and humble. And if you do that, then you look salty in this earth. Because anybody and everybody can certainly condemn uh, the other side easily, naturally. You don't have to be a believer to do that. But to be a believer, uh, that's what's required in order to do these these other things. And so how to live a salted life in the political realm. You can have really strong convictions, but identify the fact that we need to see the world differently than the world sees itself. We need to know what the Bible says in principle about politics and about different ways to approach human interaction. And then we need to really, at the end of the day, obey the word of God and humbly submit and do what Paul instructs us to do regardless of the context we find ourselves in. So. Exactly. But none of that's as important as this question, Yon. Peppermint mocha or not? Yeah. Well, I like peppermint and I like mocha and I do like putting them together in a Ooh. peppermint mocha. So it is delicious. I put peppermint in like... I get like a red eye sometimes and put peppermint in mm-hmm. it as well. So I, I, I'm a, I'm a peppermint guy. Not so much. I'm a, that's the season I embrace. I don't embrace the, whatever that last one was. Oh, pumpkin, pumpkin spice. spices and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm a, I'll take the peppermint over the pumpkin spice. And that's one of the reasons I'm grateful Christmas shows up. Yeah. So. There is something special about Christmas when you're sipping a peppermint mocha. And, and I would, I would argue that peppermint mocha is more Christmas than snow. Yeah. I don't need snow. For all of our southern listeners, you're missing it because you don't get snow on Christmas. But oh, yeah. and 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 if you get a chance, don't miss peppermint ice cream during the holiday season. Another defining uh, sensation during the holidays, in my humble opinion. Do you make it yourself, or do you? Oh no, I mean, it? start at Gannon's. Oh, okay. start at Gannon's, and then. Um, and you can kind of, if you want to slum it, you can go pick up some peppermint ice cream anywhere grocery store wise. Yeah. Uh, but in my opinion, that works too. Honestly. Or you can crumble up some p- candy canes in your ice cream and then stab your tongue with little shards of, Ooh, yeah, I like so if you're interested in that. So, but yeah, go get your peppermint mocha and then think about how to be the best Christian politician <laughs> in the history of our country. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much for checking out the Salted Podcast. You can find other episodes and topics on SoundCloud and on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you click follow so you can get notifications whenever new episodes come up. Thanks for listening.